This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's bring in Brendan Case. He's team leader of the America's Industrial and Aerospace team at Bloomberg News, has been covering, he and the team have been covering the Boeing story uh, from day to day. He joins us on the phone from Dallas. So, Brendan, put into perspective, we haven't, I don't believe, seen these messages, but tell us a little bit. Actually, I guess we don't have him yet, and hopefully we'll get to him. But I do think what's interesting is, you know, okay, Brendan is here. Eh, you know, technology. Uh, Brendan, come on in on the Boeing story and tell us about this latest new batch of messages from Boeing employees on the development of the 737 MAX. What do we know so far? We haven't actually seen these messages, or have we? Well, that's right. We have not seen the messages. Uh, we know a little bit about them. We know that a congressional aide described them as uh, at times very disturbing. And we know that uh, some of the messages apparently uh, raise questions about Boeing employees expressing concern about the, the, the company's commitment to safety. Um, and there are apparently other messages that uh, raise questions about uh, different Boeing employees expressing worries that uh, regulators or, um, or, or other uh, actors could disrupt production plans. So, Brendan, in addition to the content that's in, that's in these messages, the other issue here seems to be just simply the disclosure as well. I mean, we had a previous batch of messages, which uh, we now know uh, weren't turned over to the FAA in a, in a fashion that the FAA thinks they should have been. What is the relationship now between Boeing and the FAA? Well, Boeing's statement on Monday when they announced uh, the departure of Dennis Mullenberg as CEO uh, very clearly uh, said that the relationship with the FAA uh, is is in need of a of a major reset, um, and I. It, I think we can we can draw the conclusion that after the last couple months in which the company and the regulator uh, were diverging in their views about when the Max could could come back into service, uh, that that really caused a lot of damage, and it'll be sort of job one for the new CEO David Calhoun to try to reset that relationship and. And, and repair some of what's been lost. I think what was worrisome too is that it was the second time that the that Boeing had delayed turning over to the FAA some sensitive messages related to the development of the 737 Max. I've got to believe that, you know, um, Mr. Calhoun has come in and said, "All right, guys, give me all the information that we need to to turn over to re regulators because he's got to want to fix this as soon as possible." I think that's a reasonable interpretation, uh, but we don't know for sure yet. Um, certainly with the earlier batch of messages, the one that came out in October, uh, we do know that the FAA was uh, very disappointed in Boeing that uh, the messages hadn't been turned over earlier. The company did share the messages earlier in 2019 with Justice Department investigators, but not with the regulator. Um, and we don't know for sure what's the, what the backdrop is of the current batch and why Boeing is disclosing them now. Mm. Um, but certainly, I think it's a it's 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 a fair guess that uh, that the new boss might want to try to get everything out in the open as he tries to uh, mend mend right. this relationship. All right, well, okay, a new boss who who actually hasn't taken over yet. Obviously, there's a little bit of a lag here uh, between uh, the Alcina Mullenberg and Calhoun actually coming in uh, and sitting down at that desk. Uh, once he's there, 
do we have any sense here that the way he's going to do things, Brendan, is going to be incredibly different than the way Mullenberg did things? That's a really big question mark at the moment. You know, David Calhoun is new to the Boeing executive ranks. He is not at all new to the company. He's been on the board for a decade. Uh, he was lead director at the time of both crashes of the, of the MAX. He took over as chairman in October. He's intimately uh, involved with the entire crisis response that Boeing has had. Um, and it's not at all clear in what ways, if any, he'll differentiate himself from Dennis Mullenberg in terms of his actions. Um, although I do think that, that Boeing made pretty clear this week that, uh, that Mullenberg's ties with the FAA were badly frayed. And it's possible that Calhoun could come in and at least, at least start to uh, start to sort of differentiate himself from Mullenberg in terms of uh, smoothing over this relationship with, with, with the chief regulator. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Brendan, thank you so much. Brendan Case is team leader of the America's Industrial and Aerospace uh, team here at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Dallas. All right, welcome back to a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg TV and radio. I am Romain Bostic here along with Carol Master. Carol, we've had a lot to talk about today. Yes. Uh, despite the fact that it's the day after Christmas, still a relatively busy day. And we're going to keep the conversation going because uh, during this holiday season, nonprofits come into focus. Yeah. Uh, nonprofits also looking to focus on giving to those in need instead of just receiving. And joining us now to talk about the business side of nonprofit organizations is Partnership with Children CEO, Margaret Crody. How are you? Fine, thank you. Well, Happy thanks for holidays. joining us. I, you know, we, we talk about nonprofits uh, in a way these days much differently than we did uh, a decade ago, a couple of decades ago. It seemed like before the playbook was you go out, you find a couple of well-heeled investors or uh, donators, I should say, uh, and then you just sort of, you know, ride your way to whatever goal you're trying to do. That model doesn't really work anymore, does it? Oh, no. I mean, we yeah. we are basically a government contractor. So mm -hmm. we take big government contracts mm -hmm. and they don't pay the cost of the services mm -hmm. that we provide. So if we want to have really good professional development, if we want to have really good technology, if we want to have good evaluation, we have to raise private money to do that. Um, so you're basically juggling scale. So if every government contract produces a deficit, you need to raise that private money. Um, and really, the only way you can get to scale is to have government contracts. So. So it's a balancing act. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a little bit um, of both. I, can I take a step back? Tell yeah. us a little bit about the work you guys yeah, do, because you've course. been doing this for yeah. over a century. That's right. So Partnership with Children was founded in 1908 to serve the children in the city who need it the most. Um, for the last 40 years or so, we've been placing, our DNA is, is, is social work. So we have been placing full-time social workers in schools to provide all of the mental health services, all of the social emotional learning services, all of the community school services that children and families need when they're growing up in poverty. Um, we also we say that so simply, but there's so many, uh, and I don't mean you said it no. simply, but I think we don't realize the stresses, right, and the difficulties no. of for a young child who grows up in that situation. You're exactly right. So I think that I personally think that as we learn more and more about neuroscience, we're going to change the way we talk and think about poverty. So toxic stress is the chronic, unrelenting stress that that you can often experience if you're growing up in neighborhoods with scarcity, with violence, with instability. Homelessness, and if it's unmitigated, it becomes toxic. And I believe that that is the greatest public health issue that we as a society face, mm -hmm. because it has short-term problems, medium-term problems, and long-term problems. It it helps uh, to to mitigate that stress, helps you succeed in school. It prevents short-term and long-term mental health problems, and most importantly 
Toxic stress produces long-term, very and uh, scary long-term physical health issues right. as well. Health issues. That's what I was thinking. And yeah. we're starting to recognize that a little bit more and a sort of apply a different approach. I'm wondering though. I mean, I came from a generation where it seemed like some of those stresses were addressed in a way within the schools or within that school yeah. system, uh, in a little bit more humane way. And it seems that we've reverted to. A, at least in certain school systems, to using more law enforcement and other measures that maybe aren't as, um, uh, I guess, palatable to sort of making sure that these kids yeah. are getting help and not just being penalized or punished. Yeah, so we're really advocating for a trauma-informed approach in mm -hmm. schools rather than a punitive approach. So we use a lot of restorative practices. We make sure that we, when we go into school, we don't say, what's wrong with you? We say, what's happening? What's going on? And that changes everything that follows. Um, and Just so, a few words, but it makes a big difference. It's, exactly. Well, it's interesting too. So, I, and I do think about um, you know the work that you guys are doing. You talk about these government contracts, but I feel like you know we talk about the market being at records and um, the upper echelons of the wealthy. You know, and and we know a lot of these folks give back. You know, what's the environment for you guys in terms of meeting the financial needs that you? that you do require to keep this organization going? Well, we depend on a board. We have a very impressive board that represents, you know, a, a huge array of big companies, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, GE, a lot of media companies, IBM, and they really help us with the corporate fundraising as well. Um, but it's hard and you really have to go out there and show that you have results and you really want to talk about your impact and the, and the way that your money is being used efficiently and effectively. Um, we try to show scale without showing any kind of you know, uh, complacency. So it's it's hard, and you really have to work at it. Yeah. To, but to be effective, do you need that scale? Do you have to have that scale as a nonprofit these days? So I think that that is one of the most interesting questions. Mm -hmm. And so if you're very good at private fundraising, then scale is easy because mm -hmm. you know your government contracts produce a deficit almost as a rule. Um, but if you can't raise that private money to keep up, then it's hard to have scale. Um, and scale, you know, you don't have efficiencies, economies of scale. I mean, we're talking about the, the effect of a one-on-one -on -one relationship, a social worker with a child. You can't scale that. You can't use artificial intelligence. You have to you figure out. You can't cut corners with that. You cannot cut corners. And we operate so leanly. There's no unused capacity in our organization. And so, so scale is a tricky question. But the more children that we can affect with our proven model, our evidence-based practices, the better. The work that you're doing, just one last question, in terms of dealing with toxic stress um, yeah. on kids, and I do feel like tr stress has become the big topic for yeah. everyone, but in this particular population, um, what kind of payoff have you seen? What kind of impact because of the work that you guys have done? Yeah, it's almost immediate. I mean, the the relationship and the feel with an adult, the feeling of, of safety, of love, that's the mitigating factor. And so you see attendance go up, you see test scores go up, you see graduation rates go up, you see safety all the safety measures, all the community measures in schools improve. You see parent engagement improve. It's great. You see dropout go down it's immediately. Great. Well, be sure to stay yeah. in touch because we'd love to hear a little bit more about this in the future. Margaret Crotty, thank you so much. Thank you. She's the CEO of Partnership with Children, joining us here in our studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.